The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're stepping into the world of astrophysics, looking at how we got to where we are now, and at some exciting new evidence pushing out the frontiers of astrophysics even more. Hello, and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Ethan Siegel, theoretical astrophysicist and professor at the Lewis and Clark College in Portland, Oregon. He has previously taught at the University of Portland, the University of Wisconsin, and done astrophysics research at the University of Arizona. He writes about physics and astronomy on Forbes and on the Medium Network. And he's back again today to talk about his first book, Beyond the Galaxy, How Humanity Looked Beyond Our Milky Way and Discovered the Entire Universe. Ethan, as always, welcome back. Thank you, Rochelle. It's a pleasure to be here. You're kind of like our resident astrophysicist. I think everyone should have a resident astrophysicist. I agree. Um, so why did you decide to write a book? When I started at Lewis and Clark in 2009, I, I was teaching intro to astronomy. And the first thing you have to do is you have to select some books for your class. And what I wanted was I said to myself, who is this audience? Who are the kids who take intro to astronomy? Because most of the books that are out there that are geared towards intro astronomy classes are really written from a, this is a great book if you're going to be a future astronomer. Let's give you your first introduction to astronomy and tell you about how all these different things work and how you solve these classes of problems. And the big problem for me with that approach is students who take that will learn how to solve the problems you want them to solve for a few months. They'll get it in their head for the final and then they'll forget it. What sticks with people are stories about the universe, are the scientific process of discovery and how we know the things we know, how if all of human knowledge were wiped out tomorrow, how you could rediscover all of these scientific truths for yourself. And so that was the book I was looking for, and unfortunately, it didn't exist. And so after a couple of years of telling my students I should write it, I actually did. I said, listen, I don't really care what you know a month from now or four months from now or what you can do on the final. I care that you are aware of this story of what the universe is and how we came to know it. If I can develop in you an awareness and an appreciation for what the scientific process is and for how we can explore this and answer any questions we have about the physical universe by asking the physical universe itself, then that's, that's going to be how I measure my success as a teacher and as an educator. And so once I decided to write that book, I decided to make this available for everyone. So when you think of the audience for this book, what's sort of the accessibility level? Because there's, there's not a lot of math in here, which is kind of unusual for a lot of physics books. I look at equations as they're a big turnoff for people. You throw equations in the book and you're saying you're going to have to do some work here. You know, when you're quantitatively engaging in science yourself, those measurements are very important as far as obtaining the answers for yourself. 
I think the big thing that I want the audience to take away, the people who read this book, is to understand the process behind it, not necessarily the nitty-gritty details. Those are, if you're using this book for an intro astronomy class, you know, you have your own favorite set of problems you want people to solve. Any professor worth their weight in salt can add that in. But, but from a reader's point of view, this is a story. This is the story of discovery. This is the story of how you can learn anything from when you're looking up in the night sky, what are those objects that you're seeing, to what is the fundamental structure of the universe, to how do we know the universe is expanding, to dark matter, to dark energy, to the origin and the fate of the universe. These are really big questions that for thousands of years were in the realm of religion and poetry and philosophy. Well, in the last century, science has answered them. We know these answers now. For me to get to tell that story, I think I'm in an absolutely privileged place where humanity actually has these answers, and they shouldn't just be for people like me who got their PhD in astrophysics. This should be for everyone. So I would say, who is my book for? It's for someone who wants to know these questions that we've been asking for the entire history of humanity that we finally got answers to. If you want to know what those answers actually are and how we obtain them, this is a book for you. So there are a lot of what I kind of think of in my head as everything physics books out there. So how, when you were writing yours, did you want to make yours different from a lot of other pop physics books that people might have heard of or read? You know, there are there are a few books out there, and I don't want to name names, but there's really no way to talk about them without naming names. So, so a big example is like Stephen Hawking's book, A Brief History of Time, right? That's that's maybe a classic, like if you want to read a book about astrophysics, read this book. Well, an issue I have with that book is about 80% of what's in it is what physicists and cosmologists and astronomers actually believe is the best scientific truth about the universe. And the other 20% of that is what one particular astrophysicist has as an opinion about certain matters in the universe. And I didn't want to have that in there. I I do have opinions on, on many matters in astrophysics and cosmology, but this book and this story, it's not about me. It's not about what I think. I, I did my absolute best to complete completely remove all of those personal attachments I have from telling this story. This is about the universe itself. This is about the story it tells us because we ask questions to it. So the first thing I wanted to do to make my book different from the others is I wanted to take myself out of it and I wanted to just put in, here's the story that the universe tells us about itself that we, and here's how we get it is by asking all of these questions. The second thing I wanted to do that I thought would make it really different was I didn't want to assume any prior knowledge of astronomy or of physics or of, of any of these things. I think that if you, if you assume your audience, the way, the way it was told to me once is you should assume your audience is an alien, which is to say that they have intelligence with 
where if you give them the tools and the equipment to solve something, they can solve it perfectly. But to also assume that they have no experience with the things that, that I may be familiar with. So you'll notice this book starts out assuming that all you have is access to seeing the sky with your own eyes. And what can you learn from that? And how do you learn from that? And you find out immediately that you can learn things about the days and the seasons and then very quickly about our solar system and the universe beyond it, including how eclipses work, the fact that the Earth is round and how you measure its size. And then by just adding a few little things, by adding one step at a time, you can start going well beyond our solar system to the stars beyond, from beyond our stars to the galaxy, from beyond our whole galaxy to the other galaxies in the universe. And by adding one step at a time, you can go all the way back to the Big Bang and even before. You can go into the things you can't see with visible light, like x-rays, and then even further into things like dark matter and where the matter-antimatter asymmetry comes from, and all the way into the future where we can learn what the fate of our universe is destined to be. So I think that's the third thing that really sets this book apart, is this is a comprehensive story of where we are in physics and in astrophysics, where that cutting edge is, and where where the frontiers of physics are as of the moment this book was published, which is, you know, three months ago. So your book is also kind of interesting in that there's a few spots in it where you kind of talk a little bit about some of the false starts we had or some of the ideas that we had that didn't pan out. And sometimes those ideas ultimately led to other ideas that did pan out. But that's something we don't read a lot about in physics, the sort of the the mistakes we made or the ideas we had that just weren't at all accurate. But that, I think you hit on a really good point here because there's a difference between those two. It's not a mistake to have an idea that turns out to be wrong. In fact, that's something that's really vital to the scientific process, right? Part of what happens in science is you see a phenomenon or you see a suite of phenomena and you say, what could possibly explain this? And if you're a good scientist, you won't just run to the first explanation you think of. What you'll do is you'll go and look and say, wow, there are these three or four or five or ten different ways that we could possibly explain this. Well, what are the differences between these things? What makes one different from the other? So you have multiple possible explanations for why, for example, the light from distant galaxies might appear to be redshifted. It could be because the light gets tired. It could be because the universe is expanding. It could be because these galaxies are speeding away from us close to the speed of light. It could be a whole host of explanations. So what you do is you consider each one of them and you consider, well, if I pursue this, if I said this is the explanation for it, then what conclusions would I be led to? Where would I wind up having having started with this and what it does is it takes you to different places you can see that wow i might get the same prediction for this one result but then what i can do is i can see what are some other things i can go and observe or that i can go and measure that would allow me to tell these theories apart that would allow me to tell these different ideas apart and find which one is right and which one is wrong 
And that's how science moves forward. So I think giving people an insight into what the scientific process is and and to take that fabulous step of challenging your own ideas, your own pet personal ideas that you came up with by confronting them with evidence, that's really the mark of a good scientist. And can you, and this is the hardest thing for scientists to do, and I do talk about examples where even some of the best scientists were unable to be good scientists when it came to their own ideas. Can you, when the evidence flies in the face of what your theory predicts, can you back up, say goodbye to your theory, and bring in a new theory that does explain the full suite of all the data that's out there? That's a really difficult thing to do, both in science and also out of science in all aspects of our lives. But I think that's one of the things that separates science from all other endeavors, is that you have to follow where the evidence leads you. You have to follow to what the universe tells you about it itself. I think what I find really interesting about the narrative of science is that when we tell the stories, when we tell the story of physics in the last century, it's a very clear path. Point A led to point B, led to point C, led to point D. But actually, it was not quite so clear when people were there. There was lots of missteps and wrong turns and confusing data that took people a long time to figure out what it meant. And it's nice to see some of that put back in because it really helps you to understand how confusing all this would have been at the time and how difficult it would have been to try and and come up with some of these ideas and also kind of how exciting. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true because I think there is this big myth that we have about scientists and how, you know, oh, like you just you make this one amazing discovery and everything is clear and everyone accepts it and then things move forward. In reality, what normally happens is for years or even decades leading up to a discovery like that that really changes our perception of things, there are arguments that are taking place because there are multiple interpretations that could work in principle. And and people get attached to these interpretations and they point to this line of evidence that supports what I'm thinking and that line of evidence that supports what what you're saying. Um, one of my favorite things, and the reason I titled the book Beyond the Galaxy, is in the third chapter, I talk about how we discovered that these spirals that we saw in the night sky, which we now know to be spiral galaxies, we didn't always know that they were galaxies. In fact, we didn't always know that there was more to the universe than just the Milky Way galaxy. There was this big debate that took place in 1920. So less than a hundred years ago, we didn't know this between two very well respected astronomers, Harlow Shapley and Haber Curtis, and they were arguing over whether these spirals were, in fact, galaxies well beyond the Milky Way, or whether they were, the other explanation was they were proto-stars, that they were clumps of matter, disks of matter that were funneling material into the center where new stars were forming that were contained within the Milky Way. And the way that this argument unfolded was there were six pieces of evidence that each person agreed on, each of these two men agreed on, but argued over how do we interpret these pieces of evidence. And 
And what they wound up doing was, for some of them, each person said, well, here's why this observation isn't very good, or here's why this observation strongly supports my point. And they argued about each of these six points, and... Um, long story short, the American Physical Society, which is the biggest organization of physicists in the United States, uh, declared Harlow Shapley the winner of it. And Shapley was the, the proto-stars advocate. This didn't settle anything. Debate is not a way to do science. Democracy really doesn't matter in science. What matters in science is what the evidence points towards, not how we want the evidence to turn out. So, yes, there was this debate in 1920, and they declared a winner, and it solved absolutely nothing. None of this was solved during that debate. All that debate did was it brought up the issues that scientists were thinking about at the time, trying to figure out what the solution to this mystery was to the forefront. It brought it out in the open, and it was years later when Edwin Hubble made his observations of one of these spirals and found that there were these classes of objects that we knew the brightness of and we could measure the brightness of them so we knew how intrinsically bright they were, we were able to measure how bright they appeared, that knowing how brightness and distance relates to one another, which is something astronomers had known for about 250 years at that time, allowed Hubble to immediately determine the distance distance to these spirals and found that they were maybe 10 times, maybe even 100 times farther away than anything else in the Milky Way. So this debate didn't solve anything. But what it does is it sort of illustrates that you are always going to come up in science to here's the frontiers of where we are. Here are the last great knowns and the next great unknowns. And there's not an answer to be found in arguing over over it, right? Arguing isn't going to get you anywhere. What's going to get you somewhere is finding that next set of data, that next observation, that next measurement that's actually going to coax the universe into revealing the answer to you. Because once the universe speaks for itself, there are no alternatives that we have if we want to be consistent with reality other than to listen to it. So your book really focuses in on what's happened in the last 100 years. And mostly my question is, why did you want to focus on the last 100 years? And what was kind of happening around that time that made it sort of an interesting place to start your book? I would say that if you take a look at the way my book is written and the way most astronomy courses are are taught. People typically spend the first half of an introductory astronomy course on this ancient stuff. And I use ancient stuff to mean, you know, anything that happened before 1900, that you'll talk about the sun and the moon and the earth and eclipses and parallaxes and what you can see looking through a telescope for the first time and the planets in our solar system and maybe a few of those nebulous objects in the sky. And people typically spend about half of an astronomy course on that. And I don't think it needs to take up that much. When you take a science course or when you read a science book, I think what people get excited about is finding out where those frontiers actually are today and where they were in the past and how we moved past them. I don't think I wrote this book to be like the other books that are out there. I think I wrote this book to tell the story that I feel everyone should have access to. Why should 
shouldn't everyone know how we discovered all these galaxies in the universe? Why shouldn't everyone know, hey, it's not just I'm going to tell you the Big Bang happened. Why can't I tell you what all the ideas were that were out there and where the elements that make up you and me and this planet come from and how we discovered that, wow, the Big Bang really did happen because we made this observation and this observation and this observation and we saw these three things and not those other possibilities out there. I think the big developments that happened were we started this combination of large, high-quality telescopes and optics combined with the ability to take photographs and long exposures of these objects in the sky. So that was one thing that happened. We also developed a lot of optical things where we figured out that there was more to light than just visible light and how to break it up into individual wavelengths and perform spectroscopy. So that was one big thing that happened in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. But a second big thing that happened is more and more data started to be taken. We started to go from astronomy as, you know, a lone, wealthy person with leisure time and money and equipment on their hands, you know, performing this isolated, you know, ex exploration on their own to a huge global community of scientists who were all working on the same classes of problems and sharing knowledge and 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 gathering large amounts of data that that were useful for multiple different purposes that all started happening in the early 20th century and that's why i think we've seen this huge explosion and development in both physics and astronomy is that is that the amount of people working on this are it's increasing tremendously the number of problems and the number of frontiers that we're pushing back on is huge so if you weren't interested in the origin of the universe, if you were more interested in how do these stars vary from one another, that was something you could study. If you were more interested in what explains the spectra of these distant objects, that was something you can study. It's very difficult to be a, an absolute cutting-edge expert in all of these different aspects of it. But if you can bring all of those different aspects together as far as what the body of human knowledge actually is, there's a tremendous journey that we've taken. And that's the journey that I would like to lead people on because – this is this is the story that the universe has told us that we have coaxed it into revealing to us about where it came from, how it got to be this way, and where it's headed into the future. We're just about out of time, but really quick before I let you go, do you have a, a favorite kind of mostly unknown or maybe underappreciated astrophysics discovery story or uh, just discovery that you wish more people knew about? You know, I would say if I had to pick one, the most underappreciated astrophysical discovery story there is was from Fritz Zwicky, a Swiss astronomer uh, in the 1930s. 
he was a really strange guy. Um, and by strange, I mean he was brilliant and, and unusual, and there really wasn't anyone like him. If you've ever heard of the word supernova, he's the one who coined that. Um, he did something really strange one evening. Um, the atmospheric turbulence was pretty high, and so what he decided to do in an attempt to reduce turbulence was he picked up a rifle and he positioned this rifle right at the edge of the telescope and fired into the direction the telescope was looking, reasoning that maybe if I fired this gun, the the airflow that this bullet would create would, you know, sort of make the seeing better and would clear the air. It, it didn't, but I think that's a story that really goes and shows to what great lengths this person was trying to make new things happen, to make improvements happen. My favorite thing that he did is he was looking at galaxies in the coma cluster. This is a cluster of galaxies. It's very dense. There are about 3,000 Milky Way-sized galaxies in the coma cluster. They're all bound together, and it's relatively close by. It's the closest cluster to us that's actually this large. It's about 320 million light years away. So it's pretty far, but as far as a huge cluster of galaxies, Sees it's the closest giant one. What he was doing is he was measuring how fast are all of these galaxies inside moving relative to one another. And this measurement, he reasoned, is he said, look, I know the laws of gravity. And if I know the laws of gravity, then if I measure the speed at which these objects are moving, then I can figure out how much mass has to be in there in order for these objects to remain in a bound cluster. So he did that and he got a number. This was measuring mass through gravity. But then he also said, well, hang on, you know, here in our solar system, I know that 99.8% of the mass is in our sun. So, if I go and I know how stars work, and I'm an astronomer, so I think I do, I can go look at all the starlight coming from these galaxies. And I can tell you, hmm, if this is how many stars there are, if this is all the mass that's in stars, and this is all the mass that I get from gravity, these numbers should match. And he was the first person to make that measurement. And not only they did, didn't they match, they didn't come close. He said that they were off by a factor of 160. So there was 160 times more gravity than there was mass in stars. Now this, this was a big problem to him and he said there has to be some type of dark matter in there. He called it dunkel materie, which is, you know, the word for dark matter in, I believe, Swiss German. And so he was the first person to come up with this idea. Now, for generations, for about 40 years, people were not willing to consider this idea. People said, well, here's the thing is you're basing this on the fact that all the stars are like our sun and we know they're not. Well, if you take that into account, that gives you a factor of three. So it's more like a 50 to one mismatch than 160 to one, but that's still a very bad mismatch. And then other people said, well, look, there are lots of other things out there besides stars. There are 
planets, there's dust, there's gas, there's plasma, there's ions, there's black holes, there's, there's all sorts of other things out there. And so, you know, that's probably what that is. Well, it turned out, you know, and Fritz Zwicky had no way of knowing this, it turned out that that'll get you up to about 14%. There's about seven times as much of all that other stuff combined as there is of stars. But that still means that about 85% of the universe is unaccounted for. That about five times as much of all the stuff that normal matter can add up to was out there. What's not crazy is that people didn't realize it at the time, but what is crazy is that people dismissed this idea and people dismissed these very good measurements, which led to the, led to this idea just out of hand, assuming that there was going to be some fix that came in, that we were just going to discover all this missing normal matter and that would account for the discrepancy. We didn't start taking the idea of dark matter seriously until Vera Rubin made observations of the rotation speeds of individual galaxies in the 1970s. But we could have gotten a 40-year head start on dark matter if only we had listened to Fritz Zwicky, who turned out to be correct, by the way. Ethan, it is always lovely to have you on the show, and uh, I definitely really enjoyed reading the book. Well, I'm glad you did, and uh, and I encourage everyone to not only check it out, but um, if you are a, a teacher or a professor who wants to use this for their course or anything, um, feel free to get in touch with me. I know Science for the People will put my information on the on their website. Um, feel free to get in touch with me and I'll be happy to send you electronic copies of the image that you can use for educational purposes. And of course, we will definitely have links to all of Ethan Siegel's websites and various blogs, and also where you can find a copy of his book, which is Beyond the Galaxy, How Humanity Looked Beyond Our Milky Way and Discovered the Entire Universe. After the break, Bethany Brookshire sits down with astrophysicist Katie Mack to better understand the latest and greatest on gravity waves. Stay tuned. Every week on Science for the People, we take the latest in scientific progress and relate it to people, our friends, our families, our communities, and our society. And we give researchers, authors, and journalists the time to talk in-depth about what matters to them. If you love science but aren't satisfied with sound bites, join us again next week for Science for the People on your local radio station or anytime online at scienceforthepeople.ca. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, a science writer with Science News and Society for Science and the Public. I'm here today with Dr. Katie Mack, an astrophysicist at the University of Melbourne in Australia, to talk about the recent detection of gravitational waves. Hi, Katie. Hello. Thanks so much for being here. It's good to be here. So I'm going to start with some very basic questions because okay. I am not ashamed to say that I barely understand this at all. Okay. <laughs> what are gravitational waves supposed to be, and who came up with this idea in the first place? Einstein came up with this idea, and it's part of his big picture of gravity that he put together in general relativity. And the basic idea behind general relativity is that space-time can be curved. So space-time is like you take the three dimensions of space and you count in one dimension of time. And this creates sort of the grid upon which everything in physics happens in the universe. 
And what his idea was is that when there's something massive in, in the universe, like a, a star or a planet or something like that, it curves space-time. So it sort of bends this whole grid system toward itself. And what that means is that if uh, light is traveling through the universe in a curved space-time, it'll curve with the space-time. Or if a planet is moving past a star, the star has curved that space and the planet will sort of divert its course possibly into an orbit or it'll bend around around the star. And so there's this idea that that space-time has ha, can be warped, can have these sort of dents in it. If you can, I mean, the usual picture, the usual analogy is you take like a trampoline and you put a bowling ball in the center, and then you can like roll a golf ball past, and it'll kind of orbit around. It, you can that's a sort of lower dimensional analogy, but you can think about it sort of that way. In but you know, in in three dimensions of space, and then time is also bent in a weird way as well. Um, so, so this is, this is this idea that, that space time can be curved. And what Einstein, um, came up with as a, as a consequence of that is that when objects are moving around in the universe in an accelerated way, like for instance, in an orbit, that's a kind of acceleration, um, then they create ripples in space time. So as they're moving through space time and curving it as they go, it's kind of creating these, these ripples, these waves of space time. And those space time waves, uh, carry gravity. They, they carry um, distortions in in space time, and you can detect those as gravitational waves, which is which is what we just did. Um, that's and that's a thing where you can you can see how space time is moving in other parts of the universe. Okay, so <laughs> let me let me kind of back sure. up a little bit. You talked a little bit about space time. People yeah. often kind of describe this as as a fabric, but you're also talking sure. about a, a three dimensional grid. Yeah. Uh, can you kind of break that down a little bit? Yeah, I mean, you can call you can think about it as like the fabric of the universe. It's not really a stuff, like it doesn't have like material existence, which is why the the idea of it being the fabric of the universe is a little bit strange, but it does it can be sort of warped and bent and and it's got a a, a sort of elasticity in the, in the sense that it has these waves in it. So you can think about it like a fabric. Um, I, I like to think about it like a grid in the sense that like all of all of the physics that happens in the universe happens um, in in the sort of like sort of like this grid and the grid can be bent around and that changes how how things move and and how light travels and stuff like that. So you, you can think about it in a couple of different ways, but basically space time is just it's just space, the three dimensions of space and the one dimension of time, and it's just the the idea that these are linked inexorably together, so that when you do something to space, it affects time and, and vice versa. Okay, and gravitational waves mm-hmm. in space time have yeah. to do with relativity, general relativity. Yes. Can you yes. explain what relativity is and how that works? Well, so there's two types of, spe- of relativity. There's uh, there's special relativity, which was the first thing Einstein came up with uh, in 1905. That's this idea that, that space and time are linked, and and specifically that, that the speed of light is constant and never changes. And um, I mean, if you're in space, I mean, you can you can slow down light by putting it through glass, but that's kind of a separate thing. So there's this idea that the speed of light is a constant, that it's the ultimate speed limit of the universe. That's that's all special relativity. It also says that you know things are time moves differently when you're moving fast and, and stuff like that. Then in 1915, Einstein came up with general relativity, which is the gravitational version of relativity. General relativity is where you get this curved space-time thing happening. So these two ideas together make up kind of the entirety of, of relativity. And that that tells us about how 
time works when, when gravity is involved or when high speeds are involved. Basically, if you're moving faster, time moves slower, or if you're close to a gravitational body, time moves slower. Those things are, are things that we need to take into account for stuff like the GPS system. The gravitational waves are, are really a consequence of general relativity of, of the gravitational idea of gravity comes from uh, from distortions in space-time and and also that that gravity travels as a wave like just so so if you turn on a light in a room the light takes some time to get to you because it's traveling at the speed of light and it travels as a as an electromagnetic wave a light wave so for instance if the sun ceased to exist right now then it would take eight minutes for the light from the sun to get to us so we for eight minutes we would still see the sun shining and it wouldn't be until the eighth minute that that it would go dark right? But it turns out that Einstein also said that gravity travels as a wave and also travels at the speed of light. So not only would the sun still shine for eight minutes, we'd still orbit it for eight minutes because the, it would take time for that gravitational information to get to us. And that's because it, gravity is traveling as a wave and that wave would, would take, take that time because it's also traveling at the speed of light. Einstein predicted the existence of gravitational waves and he actually did this about a hundred years ago, almost yes. exactly. Yes. Um, so when he did that, how did people react at the time? And has anyone tried to detect gravitational waves before? Well, at the time, it was really, it was taken to be a really speculative thing when Einstein came up with it, to the point that Einstein himself was not sure that he was right about this. Um, when he first came up with gravitational waves, uh, a couple of times he, he doubted it and thought maybe it's just some kind of weird coordinate transform issue. You know, maybe it's, these are not really waves, it's just, you know, something, some kind of artifact of the mathematics. And, and there were other contemporary scientists who were, who were uh, definitely uh, skeptical of gravitational waves existence. But also, you know, it wasn't thought that they could be ever detected because these, they're, they're really very weak. Um, what gravitational waves do is they stretch and squeeze space time. Um, so, you know, a lot of times visualizations of gravitational waves show them like like ripples on a pond if you drop a stone in, you know, that kind of thing, like just sort of rippling out, mm -hmm. um, like surface waves. That's, that's not how they work. What they really do is if a gravitational wave comes right at you, um, toward your face, for instance, uh, what it'll do is it'll stretch you out in the vertical direction while squeezing you in the horizontal direction. So it'll make your face taller and, and thinner, and then it'll switch and make your face fatter and shorter. Um, and it'll kind of oscillate back and forth like that. Um, so it, it stretches and squeezes um, in, in, you know, perpendicular directions. Uh, it does that to space-time. So everything that's in space-time gets stretched and squeezed in, in that way. Um, and that's what, that's what a gravitational wave does when it passes by. So the, the way to, the, so ideas for detecting them, um, that, that's a difficult prospect, right? Because it, let's say that you want to measure how much something is being stretched and squeezed by the stretching and squeezing of space-time, you can't use a ruler because the ruler itself will also be stretched and squeezed in exactly the same way. Um, so that's not going to work. Uh, so you have to be creative about how you how you detect uh, these these changes in in length, where the entirety of um, of the universe at that spot is also stretching and squeezing. You know, the 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 very space time in which this thing sits is stretching and squeezing, and and everything you're trying to measure it with is also stretching and squeezing. Um, so what? So the first attempt to detect uh, space time distortions from gravitational waves 
was using something called a resonant bar detector, which is where you get this piece of like a metal cylinder and you you set it up so that it has a resonant frequency where if you if you vibrated it at just the right frequency, it would ring like a bell. And you wait for a gravitational wave to come through at that frequency where it would be stretching and squeezing it in such a way that after the gravitational wave passed, the the bar would still be kind of ringing like, like a bell. It would be vibrating that way. Um, and this was first attempted in the 60s and 70s and and there were there were reports that they might have detected something, but nobody ever could could replicate it. And it was it was considered to be probably some kind of you know data artifact that that they didn't really catch it. It would have had to have been a really strong gravitational wave to to get that that bar resonating. Like it wasn't it it it, it has to be a really big effect to be able to to do that thing to the um, to the cylinder. Uh, so then later on, it was decided to try. Uh, what's called a, a interferometer. So what you do is you take uh, two laser beams and you put them at right angles to each other. So uh, this is what the LIGO detector is doing. Um, and you, sh- you shine lasers back and forth along these two perpendicular arms in an L shape. And you set it up so that the lasers, when they come back to the center after going all the way down the arms and bouncing back off of mirrors, when they come back to the center, you set them up so that they perfectly cancel out. So the two arm lengths are almost exactly the same length, but they're just they're just offset enough that that when the the laser light comes back, it interferes with itself, and so you should get no light at the end. And then what you do is you wait for a gravitational wave to come through and stretch one of the arms and squeeze the other in such a way that that perfect alignment gets off. And then you should have a little bright dot on your detector that shows that the alignment has been changed. And the reason that that works um, is a cool reason. It's So you can measure distances with light um, by measuring basically the timing of, of that light. Because as I said before, the, the light travels at the same speed in vacuum, no matter what's going on with space time. So while this, uh, while the, this laser light is, is bouncing back and forth on these, these two arms of this, uh, interferometer, if one of those arms gets a little bit longer, then the light just takes a little bit longer to get through it because the light's traveling at the same speed no matter what. And even though space time is stretching, uh, the light is still just going to go at the speed of light. And so one of the, so when the two laser beams go down the arms and one of them is traveling a little bit farther, it'll take a little bit longer to get back. And so when it comes back, the alignment will be a little bit off because the, you know, it, it took a little bit longer to catch up, um, to, to come back. And, and so the sort of, the waves and the troughs and peaks of, of the the light wave are no longer in quite the same place. So that's how that's how the LIGO detector works, and it's been so it's been going for a while. It was first conceived something like forty years ago, and it's gone through a couple of iterations. The first one was initial LIGO, where they just they had these. Uh, these laser beams going down these these arms of the detector, and they were trying to detect gravitational waves for for a number of years um, over the last decade or so. And initial LIGO didn't detect anything, but then um, a couple of years ago, it was refurbished and and improved in a number of ways, and the sensitivity was increased a lot. They reduced all the vibrational uh, noise and everything, and now they have advanced LIGO, and that's what made the the big detection. Okay, so I think I think you just space time bent my brain. <laughs> okay. So wait a minute. I, yeah. So what I'm getting is that LIGO, yeah. which stands for laser 
Inter- Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory yeah. um, actually measures gravitational waves because light is moving constantly, but the actual um, the tubes through which it is traveling are bending slightly when space-time bends. They're they're stretching and squeezing slightly. Yeah. So, so and they're on Earth, so yeah, they're stretching and squeezing, and so are we. Yes, yes, we are. Wow. We're, like, <laughs> yeah, there are there are gravitational waves traveling through you right now and you are stretching and squeezing like you know like a stretchy doll thing um all the time it's just that it's a really 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 tiny effect so the the so the signal that LIGO picked up was uh from black holes coming together in the distant universe and I'm sure we'll talk about that in a bit but what they detected was a change in length of these these laser arms um of a fraction uh, of one over 10 to the 21 or so. So that's one followed by 21 zeros, um, which, okay, so this, these arms are four kilometers long. So you have these laser beams going four kilometers, bouncing off a mirror and coming back. The length of that, tra- that um, arm where the laser beam was traveling through, the length of that tube, changed by about one one thousandth the width of a proton. That's and we detected what that? Measured. Yes, yes, we did. <laughs> That's amazing. Yep. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. you mentioned that these these long tubes are are four kilometers long, and there's a mirror yeah. at the end. Um, how how tall are they, and where is this thing located? Uh, so there are two of the, these detectors, um, two identical detectors. One is in Washington State, and one is in Louisiana. How tall they are? I mean, they're they're like I don't I think they're not more than like ten meters tall. They're just these they're vacuum tubes, um, so they have to be pretty skinny because they have to keep a, a a vacuum in this in this tube along four kilometers. So you can't make it like huge, or else it's a really it's a massive pain to to evacuate. Um, but then there's like shielding around it, and and at least for one of the detectors, they they put, built. Um, a concrete like um, shield around the whole length of the tube, and part of that was because when they first built the machine, people would like shoot at it. Wait, <laughs> what? Okay, so apparently when it was first built, like passersby, like bored residents of the area would like shoot at the thing, and so they they covered it in concrete so that somebody wouldn't like shoot out the vacuum. Anyway, <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> so they're, they're shielded, you know. Um, but yeah, they're 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 pretty long, thin tubes. Um, and and the big the big uh, challenge with these things is to keep them isolated from any vibration because you know if you're looking for a change in length of these things, of the the you know a thousandth the width of a proton, then you know a little bit of air current or or seismic vibration or something like that is going to change is going to move the mirror by by much more than that. Um, also, I mean, you, one of the limiting factors is the fact that you're shooting laser light at these mirrors, and there's some radiation pressure from that. Like just the photon hitting the mirror gives it a little bit of a push, and so there's so one of the the limiting factors in how much um, how much of a shift they can detect it comes from the fact that they're limited by you know they have to shoot photons at the mirror, and that's going to give it a little bit of a push each time. So they have this, you know, these amazing systems to isolate it from vibration, so that when a truck drives by the the experiment, it doesn't um, it doesn't send it completely offline. Um, they have to uh, they have to set up like special isolation systems for the mirrors. They designed. Uh, special kinds of threads for the mirrors to hang off of, and then they've, I think, some kind of like 
I don't know, some kind of like sort of crystal thread that the mirrors hang off of and the mirrors themselves are 40, 40 kilograms in, in weight. So they're really, really heavy so that they have that like inertia. So it's hard to, to bounce them around. Um, and, this is, and then there's, you know, there's various sort of laser technology things and mirror coatings and all, all sorts of technological advances had to be, had to be achieved in order to, to get this experiment to work. So just, you know, technologically, it's, a, it's an astounding achievement to, to measure anything that precise. I'm pretty sure it's the, the most precise measuring tool ever invented. So you said there are two separate yes. LIGOs. Why are there two? Um, so there are a couple of reasons. One is to uh, to sort of deal with the, you know, the isolation issue. So like if a truck does drive by one of the detectors, it's not near the other one. So you should, so most of the, the sources of, of vibration should be separate between the two. So if, so you can, you can kind of cancel out the, uh, the vibrations that happen to one of them, but not the other. So that's, that's one issue that helps with kind of, it helps with the, the data analysis with getting the data out of the noise. Um, the other one is that, um, that it helps with localizing, figuring out where the gravitational wave came from if, if the gravitational wave does hit the earth. Um, so when the gravitational wave comes through, it'll get to one of the detectors before the other, and it will, um, and, and so, and it'll, you know, depending on which, which direction the gravitational wave is coming from and how it's oriented, you can figure out based on how it moves the arms on each of the two detectors, sort of a general vague part of the sky that it comes from. And so uh, in this, in this big detection that, that we did, I mean, I say we, I wasn't involved, <laughs> I wasn't involved in the experiment. I'm saying we as like humanity, because this is a big, big achievement for humanity. Um, but anyway, so in one of the, det- in this detection that just happened, um, there was, they were able to, to get a sort of general area in the sky where, where it came from. Um, but, uh, if they had a third detector, then they could triangulate it really well. And there, there are plans to put in, to do a third detector in a different part of the world. So there's, there's one in Italy that's being upgraded. Um, and there's just been funding approved for one in India as well. So hopefully soon there will be, um, there will be uh, three of these things online, and then we'll be able to really tell where gravitational wave comes from when it comes through. This is Science for the People. I'm here with Katie Mack, and we're talking about gravitational waves. Okay, so they detected gravitational waves, and when they did, they detected them from two black holes yes. that were hanging out around each other. Mm-hmm. How did they know where to look? Well, they can't really look anywhere, per se. The, the, the detectors are passive. They're just sitting on the on the earth and they're just waiting for a gravitational wave to come through so all they can do is sit there and hope that a gravitational wave comes and you know stretches and squeezes them in such a way that they can be detected that they you know the the wave can be detected so um so really they're they the main thing is that the 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 detector had to be at sufficient sensitivity such that if a gravitational wave happened from something like black holes colliding, um, it would be a strong enough wave. It would be enough stretching and squeezing that the experiment could detect it. And so that's, that's what they did. They just tried to get the sensitivity up and they just waited. It's, it's just sort of, you know, sort of like listening for something to happen and you don't know where it's going to come from. Um, excuse me, you, you just sit there and you just wait. <laughs> so what exactly can produce gravitational waves? How big do things have to be or what conditions have to be met? Uh, so anything where there's large masses moving in an accelerated way produces gravitational waves. So when I say accelerated, I mean not in a straight 
straight line, basically, or, you know, not sort of just free falling. Um, so the, um, so the, these, uh, these black holes were black holes in orbit around each other in a binary system. That's something that can produce gravitational waves. If you have neutron stars, which are very, very dense dead stars, those orbiting each other in, uh, in a binary system can produce gravitational waves. I mean, anything, anything where you have a kind of asymmetric, um, distribution of mass moving around produces gravitational waves. One of the things that LIGO is, is sensitive to is if you have one of these neutron stars, one of these, these dense dead stars, um, and it ha- and it's, it's so dense and so massive, um, that, and it, and spinning really, really fast. If it had a mountain on it, um, then that mountain moving around as the, as the star spins creates gravitational waves. And it's, a- and LIGO has actually put limits on how large a mountain can exist on a neutron star. Um, <laughs> and they've, they've shown that neutron stars are amazingly smooth and spherical. Uh, at least as far as as far as LIGO can tell. So, um, so really, any anything where there's mass moving around uh, in some kind of accelerated way is uh, is able to produce gravitational waves. So we've detected these gravitational waves. We've done it at really impressive expense. I think it, it was projected at first at over three hundred million U.S. dollars and has ended up costing significantly more than that. Why is it important to detect gravitational waves? Well, I mean, in the, from the point of view of, of physics, of, you know, sort of our understanding of, of physics, this, this discovery is, I think, easily the biggest, most significant discovery in my lifetime. So, um, it is really, it's, it's shown us, um, a new phenomenon in the universe, this gravitational waves. It's proved the existence of something that was first theorized a hundred years ago. Um, that is, you know, fundamental to how gravity works. It's an astonishing technological achievement. It's an astonishing theoretical achievement. I mean, the prediction for what the gravitational waves would look like in the sense of how they would make these mirrors move around, that prediction was only really made about 10 years ago when the first simulations were able to show black holes colliding and and solve Einstein's equations in a computer in, in such a way that they would work for black holes. I mean, before that, every time you tried to put black holes in the picture, it would break the, the machine because the code couldn't handle those strong forces and and uh, that kind of precision. So it's only about ten, Yeah, yeah. It, like, it was really a really big problem for a very long time. It was only in 2005 that, that the first reliable simulation of black holes colliding uh, was, was made. Um, so, you know, just the, the theoretical achievement is huge. Um, and then the, the detection found exactly that kind of pattern. Like it, it showed the, it showed these numerical, um, predictions to be, be correct. Um, it showed, I mean, it, it demonstrate, demonstrated the predictions for, you know, how far away we could detect these things based on modeling of, of, you know, what the, what the strength of the signal would be. Those were correct. You know, it was, it was really, it's really an astonishing predict, uh, astonishing achievement from, from the point of view of both theoretical and experimental physics. And it shows us this, this whole new phenomenon in the universe, this gravitational radiation thing. It, it is the sort of final prediction of general relativity that had not yet been, um, demonstrated. So we, we've kind of shown every part of general relativity to, to be, you know, viable now. 
Um, and I think the most important thing about it from the point of view of physics is that it gives us this whole new window on the universe. Uh, because now we, you know, it used to be that we could look at the universe with, you know, electromagnetic waves, like we could look at light from different distant objects, um, you know, both visible light and, you know, things like radio and gamma rays and stuff like that. Um, and we could also detect a few kinds of cosmic particles, you know, uh, neutrinos or cosmic rays um, from from distant things. But now we can detect ripples in space time itself as, as uh, you know, violent events are occurring um, in very distant space. So it's, it's an entirely new way to look at the universe. We're getting um, very, uh, very new kinds of information about the distant universe that we just couldn't access before. So that's incredibly important. And, and gravitational wave astronomy is now going to be a big part of how we observe the universe, how we study space and, and black holes and things like that. Um, and because we detected a black hole collision, uh, we're learning about black holes. We're learning about the strong, the stronger side of gravity. So before we, we weren't able to, to study how gravity works at such a high uh, gravitational system. You know, um, we could study how gravity works around, you know, in the solar system or, or um, on Earth, but we couldn't access that really, really strong gravity like happen, like what happens around black holes. Now we've we've studied the gravity around black holes as they're merging. So um, we're, you know, we're learning about black holes. So we're learning so incredibly much about the universe from from this observation and uh, and from future observations that'll come with this instrument and other instruments uh, that will detect gravitational waves. So just from the point of view of physics, it's incredibly, incredibly important. It's, you know, I've been asked a few times, you know, what are the implications for, you know, just, you know, the regular person on the street who's not a physicist, or what are the implications for, you know, humanity? Um, I was asked by one person uh, on a radio interview, does this have a uh, an implication for medical research? You know, um, that's a stretch. That's hard to, uh, to say, you know, we're not going to be able to use gravitational waves to do time travel, you know, we're not going to be able to use it to, uh, to produce hoverboards. Um, the, you know, those kinds of things are really far off at this point in terms of like, uh, using gravitational waves in some kind of technology. I don't know if that'll ever happen. I mean, when radio waves were first discovered, I don't think anybody thought that they would be useful in technology. And now they're incredibly important. I don't know if there will be some implication for gravitational waves in the future where we can use them as part of technology or, or use something we learn from them as part of uh, as part of new technology. But it's definitely true that um, that every time we make an advance in fundamental physics, it does somewhere down the line um, become an important thing for for what we're building in the future. At least as far as I know, that there's always you know I mean. Things like quantum mechanics give us all the electronics that we have. Um, you know, nuclear physics has given us power plants and, and bombs. Um, there's uh, studying antimatter. Now we have PET scans, and we can we can do better medical imaging with using antimatter, using positrons. Um, all sorts of things that we didn't think would ever have practical implications do. So there's the possibility that there will be some kind of practical um, application for this. And even if not from the gravitational waves themselves, we've had to do a lot of um, incredible technological 
research to build this machine, this most precise machine ever invented. Um, and that'll have spillovers as well. I'm sure there are lots and lots of patents coming out of this project um, for, you know, laser technology. There was um, some advances in the coding of, of mirrors uh, for, for the LIGO mirrors, um, you know, material science in making these incredibly uh, low vibrational systems. So there's, there's definitely spinoffs from, from the technology needed to build this, this machine. Well, Katie, thank you so much. I'm so sad we are completely out of time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But thank you for joining us. It was, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. We've linked to Katie's Twitter feed and website, as well as a bunch of explainers on gravitational waves at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes, where you can listen to past episodes, subscribe to the show, or leave a review. And we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivelon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten. Coordination and additional behind-the-scenes support comes from the Enthusiastic Skeptic Network team. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. In return, we regularly post special patron-only extra content and after-show casual conversations with guests. This show is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders and me, Desiree Shell. Thank you.